Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, where we aspire to have real, different conversations with legendary people about business, marketing, and life. Today, Yancey Strickler. He's the co-founder and former CEO of Kickstarter, one of the most important uh, new companies in the startup ecosystem. And he's the author of a new book called This Could Be Our Future, a manifesto for a more generous world. And I thought it was a spectacular book. And um, we have a fascinating and timely discussion. He's clearly an experienced entrepreneur who's worked with lots of other entrepreneurs. And he shares some very powerful insights that I think will apply to your business and your life, frankly. And listen for our discussion about his idea, his concept called uh, bentoism, uh, because I think it's a very intriguing way to think about life. Go to lockhead.com and check out the show notes for this uh, episode, L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D.com. And uh, my friends at NetSuite by Oracle are the number one cloud business system. They're the category queens and kings of cloud ERP uh, because NetSuite offers a full picture of all of your finances in one place in real time, right from your phone or your desktop. You can do business anywhere, anytime you want to do business with NetSuite. And NetSuite customers grow. As a matter of fact, uh, three times faster than the average S&P 500 company, and you can too. To schedule your free demo right now and receive your free guide, The Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, check out netsuite.com different. That's netsuite.com different to set up your free demo and get your free growth guide. And uh, my friends at Splunk are bringing data to everything, every question, decision, and action Check out splunk.com slash D to E and turn data into doing. Splunk.com slash D to E, as in data to everything. I also wanted to share with you um, my buddy, Mike Maples, who's one of the most uh, successful. And frankly, uh, you know, he's he's an old school guy to me. He's a, he's a venture capitalist. He's the co-founder of Floodgate Capital. And... Um, He's a guy you can do, you, Mike's word is gold. You can do business on a handshake with Mike. And we've done business for decades. And he's got a great new podcast out called Starting Greatness. How'd you like that? Great new podcast, Starting Greatness. And um, his lineup of guests is an absolute stunner. And so if you're an entrepreneur or an entrepreneurial person or you work in an entrepreneurial company, I can virtually guarantee you that Starting Greatness will be your new favorite podcast. So check out Starting Greatness with Mike Maples Jr. everywhere you get legendary podcasts. Now, hey-ho, let's go. I've written this book called This Could Be Our Future, and there's a, a section in there about the pop singer Adele. And Adele's like a very working class artist who's become, you know, such a huge star. And uh, she had a new record come out in 2015 or 2014, and she's going on tour. And when Adele goes on tour, uh, her tickets sell out. And because she's like a working class artist, she always pay, charges about 50 bucks for a ticket. She's like on the lower end of what the ticket price is. But of course, tickets get bought and then put up on secondary websites by scalpers and end up costing hundreds or thousands of dollars more. And, um, you know, the music, most of the music industry just goes along with this at this point. You know, I, I don't think artists really like it that much, but they get that it's just, it's what's, what's happened. Um, but Adele didn't want to settle for that because she realized that she was either playing shows for really rich fans or what I think bothered her the most of all, and I have no inside knowledge of this, but uh, I think what bothered her most of all is the idea that she was paying for fans who were spending more money than they could afford to see her play. Um, and so Adele ended up finding this startup um, based in the UK that had built an algorithm that would measure how loyal a fan was to an artist. So it would like approximate their social data, what, how they've interacted with Adele in the past, that kind of thing. And you, and use an algorithm to try to identify like the top 30 percentile Adele fans in every market, not limiting whether they could resell the tickets, but just having this idea that, 
you know, if we distribute the tickets according to like this kind of loyalty algorithm, um, that's a way to remove the kind of the secondary economic life of a ticket um, from the picture. And so she did this end up, it was controversial. She got, she got a fair amount of flack for it. Um, but less than 2% of those tickets got resold. And those fans saved millions of dollars to see her play. And, and it's worth just thinking about the value of this algorithm. It's just worth, worth considering the fact that, you know, we view tickets being able to be resold for the highest cost as like an efficiency. It's the market being most performant. But, you know, the same number of people see Adele play either way. You know, it's not like more people get to go if the tick if tickets costs more. It's it's the same either way. So it's just really a question about distribution. And so I I write about Adele as just someone that had found a really interesting way to think about it because currently we kind of imagine economics is how everything should be distributed. And here Adele found some other value through which to make herself available. And uh, do you have any sense for what the actual amount she left on the table by doing this was? That's a good question. I mean, I think for for those shows, it was something like six to ten million pounds that the fans saved. Um, so maybe Adele could have gotten another chunk of that. You know, it's probably. I mean, my theory about like what 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 going for the ultimate financial outcome really gets you compared to like the control case. I think it's like another an extra twenty percent that you make by squeezing everything as tight as you can. I think that's basically what it always will work out to is that like about 20% more that you could make. But the question is, what's the cost of that 20%? Well, and so if I understand sort of your work now where your headset is now, you, I want to hear your argument, but it feels like your argument is um, you want to introduce a new lens to how we think about things, how we value things, and therefore how we make decisions. And one of the provocative points of view you have is that a financial lens is not the only lens. Right. It's a, it's a powerful lens. It's, it's the pervasive lens. Um, yeah, to me, the example of Adele is she found a kind of a post-economic way to distribute goods right? They're still economic. She's, these are not charity shows. She's, I'm sure those sh- shows still operated in the black. You know, the tickets weren't $1, right? So there's still some economic thinking there. But I say post-economic because that was just like a supporting factor, but it wasn't the ultimate decider of how things were distributed, right? There, there became this loyalty value that got layered over top of economic value. Um, and so to me, that is that's a very new kind of choice and a very new kind of decision. And to me is suggestive of what, of what, of how capitalism evolves, how we evolve as a society, basically where we all recognize the importance of financial value. And, but we can also recognize the limitations of financial value being so dominant as it is right now. And so how do you, you know, how, how do you evolve with that? Do you just get angry and like take to the streets? Do you just make as much as you can and give money away from charity to charity and try to like absolve yourself in some way? Or do we, you know, do what I think our ancestors did is like you just, every destination is temporary. It's our job to keep moving forward and to always be asking those questions. And so I feel like we're at a moment in time where that's happening. And if I think about that Adele example, you know, I don't know if there's another moment in history where that could have been possible, right? Technology, technology is making new sorts of sorting mechanisms possible. Um, and I think that's, I don't know, I, I think we underrate, we underrate the, the impact of that. And so it is an interesting concept introduced to say, hey, uh, there are other things that matter. And there's been some great, you know, some people call entrepreneurs who think about this and, and maybe hopefully do something about it. They call them quote unquote social entrepreneurs. And, you know, I've had lots of conversations over the last couple of years with people who say this is a must. You know, um, um, uh, Mark and John from John's Crazy Socks, Cronin, and Mark being the dad, John being the son. And Mark said to me, he doesn't think you can have a business today that doesn't, and I forget his exact words, Yancey, but that doesn't have an economic 
agenda and a social agenda. And right. he, he might've used a different phrasing, but he, he meant exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, you know, and recently we had uh, Val Afshar on from Salesforce, you know, Benioff from the beginning, you know, the whole 1% thing. And he's taken big public stances on social issues and he's talking about um, homelessness in San Francisco. And he views the homeless as one of the stakeholders of the business because the company lives in San Francisco. These sorts of things were not typically things we heard about even a few years ago. Yeah. I mean, I, I was walking in New York recently and, uh, and saw some clothing store and in the back, it had a big sign that said 1% for the planet. And I like, uh, I don't know. I just started laughing because I just thought that seems so small <laughs> like that. Isn't that, isn't that our mindset? 99% for me, 1% for the planet. And what's crazy is like five years ago, 1% for the planet felt radical, right? Even two years ago, that felt radical. And now I look at that and I'm like, really? Like what, in what world is that enough for anything? You know? Um, but I agree. I mean, it's, it is, um, it's an emerging conversation. Um, you know, I think the ultimate outcome of of the argument I'm making is that, you know, 20 years from now, probably sooner than that, it seems absurd that someone like me is making an argument like this because this is just obviously how things run. Um, and right now, marrying a financial purpose with a non-financial purpose is like the cute indie thing to do. Um, but, but we should root for this to be like mainstream arena rock. Like I want this headlining stadiums, you know, I mean, this shouldn't be the only way this succeeds is, but is by being the dominant point of view. And I, I don't think we can settle for anything less than that. So for Kickstarter, you know, we became a, so before, before writing this book, I was the co-founder and CEO of Kickstarter. Um, by the way, nice fucking job on Kickstarter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That was a hell yeah. of a job you did there. Legendary it's, new category. Everybody said not going to happen. Stupid, uh, crazy, pot smoking, whatever. And then not only did you create the category, you created the dominating company. Yeah. You changed everything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all, I think all those things are generally true. Not, only some of those things were intentional. Um, you know, creating a category intentional, you know, uh, but yeah, but you know, while Kickstarter in 2015, when Kickstarter's like, you know, still at that point, top, they're in the AP top 20 of tech company brands or something like that. Um, we made this conversion to become a, a public benefit corporation. And that is, and that is exactly what we're talking about, which is a, a legal structure where a company is required to balance a financial purpose with a public benefit, with a non-financial purpose. Um, and so I think that's, and that, you know, there it's like legally baked in. So it's a part of every decision. So it's not like you're giving a money away to a, afterwards to apologize for how profitable you are, which is what I think a lot of corporate CSR programs boil down to. Um, but instead it's trying to integrate the purpose like directly into the core of what your company does. And, you know, to anyone that's not a business person, all these things just sound so obvious. Like, of course, that's what you would do. Isn't that what a business is? But the truth of business today is that if you are trying to reach scale, uh, if you've raised money from venture capitalists or private equity people who are trying to achieve scale, um, that is not how your company is run. Your company is run to maximize top line revenue or to maximize top line growth, which will produce top line revenue. And any consideration that is not resulting in one of those two things is just ir irrelevant and it and is emotional. Um, and so that that I really think is the the business climate and the cultural climate that we've been living in. I think we're seeing we're seeing the dam start to break a little bit, but we're in multiple decades now of us thinking that. I don't know, just there, this being this weird, this weird schism behind between how companies actually operate and kind of what seems obvious to just a, a human being for what the purpose of a company should be. <laughs> so, so maybe we could get into it. Uh, I love the sort of um, bentoism, this bento box, and I, I would identify that as a new lens. Yeah. Um, but maybe walk me through the bento box, and maybe we can um, sort of uh, pop the hood on it. Yeah. Um, so my book, the, the first half is all about like kind of the world we live in now and it's very fun and juicy and pop, pop airplane book kind of just showing how the world has been 
overrun by this belief that financial value is the only form of value. The only good idea is an idea that can make someone 10% on their money. And somehow that is the fil- that is the singular filter through which everything happens or doesn't happen. Um, and so the second half of the book, I, I, if I try to evolve beyond that. And I basically argue that our, our world today is, is based on a view of our self-interest that is really limited according to what we want right now. What I want right now is what's in my self-interest. And for me to act rationally means for me to maximize whatever it is that I want right now. If I'm hungry, that means I eat as much food as I can. If I'm feeling anxious, like I'm not getting enough internet love, then I, whatever, I do a live Periscope stream and try to get people <laughs> to look at me, you know, whatever it is. Right. Take a uh, selfie of my left butt cheek and see yeah, if that exactly. gets some likes out there or if that something. that gets enough likes, I'll give you the right one later. Yeah, totally. <laughs> whatever, whatever it takes. And if you're a business, it means squeezing whatever you can to make as much profit as you can. And that also includes not giving people raises, laying people off, like this kind of brutal math. Um, and so, and you call you know, that the now me. The now me. And we sort of, the way we visualize the now me, especially in Silicon Valley, startup land is like the hockey stick graph of the line that's sloping up and to the right. That's just like, you're winning. You're nailing it. Yeah. Boom. Boom. Every time you see one, you have to say boom. Um, and <laughs> and uh, 100 plus percent year over year growth. Yeah, yeah exactly. For infinity. Boom. <laughs> boom. Uh, so if you imagine it, if you imagine the hockey stick graph. So one day I was sitting here at my desk and I had drawn one because this is what you do as a former CEO is therapy. You just draw, you just draw hockey stick graphs. Uh, but I, I drew that. <laughs> Maybe that's why I'm a marketing guy because I'm always drawing Venn diagrams of like yeah, bubbles coming together together to yeah. create new things. <laughs> yeah, if I do maybe, it enough, it will just happen. We get this uh, bubble graph right, maybe we'll get the boom graph right. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, there are worse strategies than that. Um, so I, I, I drawn this hockey stick graph on my notebook and it suddenly occurred to me that like this chart was actually like part of a much bigger picture because as I looked at the x-axis, which measures time, I saw that it goes from now, not just to like next quarter, but it goes far into the future. So I just like drew the line farther out. And then there's the y-axis that's measuring like power, money, units sold, whatever it is that you want. Uh, and I, I imagine, well, that, you know, that y-axis also keeps going, it keeps going up because as our self-interest goes, it goes from me to us. If I think about the difference between being a three of us working on Kickstarter to 150 people working on Kickstarter, like the, your, your level of responsibility is very different. And so I ended up drawing out these, this one, what it started as a hockey stick graph turned into this larger chart with all this white space that I'd never thought about before. And I ended up drawing boxes around it and turning it into a two by two little graph. And in it, there were four spaces. In the bottom left, where the hockey stick graph was, where the chart started, there's now me, what I want and need right now. And then the bottom right of this graph, there's future me. So I'm imagining the older, wiser version of myself who lived up to my commitments, who earned the obituary I want to have in life. Uh, in the top left, there's now us, thinking about the people that we rely on and who rely on us, our families, our friends, our coworkers. And in the top right, there's future us, thinking about the next generation, and our children and everybody else's children too. And I like drew out these spaces. And I thought, well, what is this? What is this a chart of? And I wrote down a description underneath it, and I wrote beyond near-term orientation. Like this was a way for me to visualize my life beyond the near term, beyond the right now. And as I looked at those, what I'd written, I realized it was an acronym for Bento, B-E-N-T-O. And I thought, oh man, this is a this is a Bento box. And I just recently, my wife had just recently shown me something about the Bento box and how the Bento has a you know, because it has four compartments and a lid, it can control a variety of dishes. It's a mix of things. And that also, the, so the bento makes sure you don't overindulge in any one thing. And the bento also honors this amazing Japanese dieting philosophy called Hadahachibu, which says the goal of a meal is to be 80% full so that way you're still hungry for tomorrow. So I looked at what I'd drawn and I thought, oh man, this is, this is a bento box. This is bentoism. This is so... I mean, the psychic, the stars connected and the heavens open and the, like, and this is clearly, uh, how long you've been, li- uh, did you grow up on the West coast yet? <laughs> no, no, I grew up, I grew up on the East coast. Yeah. That's what I thought. This, so this to me is when I have moments like this, how I feel about it is 
I've been living on the left, left, left coast way too long here when totally. I'm connecting like Japanese food to like <laughs> charts and shit. It's the beauty I'm... of it. It's the beauty of it, right? <laughs> but I love it. It's great. And it's a, it's a fantastic analogy. Yeah. So, you know, this, you know, I knew I, I was writing a book arguing that our definition of self-interest and our definition of value were too narrow. Like that was the core premise of my book, but I didn't know. I didn't know what the, what like the metaphor was going to be. And, um, and this bento idea actually came to me. I'd written half the book and I gave myself a month where I was going to not write. I would only read and draw, only read and draw and write by hand. Cause I just thought if I get on my computer, I'm just going to check the same five websites and, you know, just do whatever, all the, all the not useful things I do. Um, and so I wanted to break my mind out of that. And it was like the 15th day of that process that bentoism, that this idea emerged to me. I quickly shot a video of it. Like I shot, you know, filmed the paper and had myself narrating it with the camera. I, you know, it's like a hidden link on Vimeo. And a couple of weeks later, I asked a friend if I could like hosted events in her house sometimes, if I could come present something at her house. And she, so she scheduled a salon for me. So I wanted to find out how crazy I was. So I stood there in front of, you know, 30 people, probably 27 of whom were strangers. And I, presented this idea. I showed the video I made uh, explaining it while I hid in a corner and just watched people's faces. I just wanted to see what, what, how another human being responded to this idea. Cause I didn't know whether, am I just talking to myself or what? And, uh, and it really, it really clicked. And then there was a funny moment at the end where this very macho guy, like very roughly slapped me on the back and said, you got some balls kid. And, uh, <laughs> I was like, all right, I guess I'm, I guess I'm doing this. I, I might be but, onto something. Um, but yeah, so I, you know, I created that and then I've just sort of been, um, learning, learning about it, living within it. I've had a year now of really making every choice by thinking about it from a bentoist lens. And what I mean by that is when I'm just facing should I decisions, I actually had a great one just the other day, but when I'm, when I'm facing should I decisions, I, I basically look at it, I draw a blank bento, which is just like four boxes. Um, if, you, if you're curious, you, you can go online to bentoism.org. There's a site that walks it through if you just want a visual reference. But um, you know, I, I, from asking some simple questions before uh, of myself, I know what my now me values are about. I know what my, my now me is about showing people the matrix. Like when I'm most clicking with myself, that's what I'm doing. I'm telling stories. I'm drawing connections. My future me, my future me wants to create harmony. I'm a child of divorce. So I was like bringing people together and uh, also not selling out. Um, that was so central to Kickstarter. And I can just really see like I grew up in punk and scenes like that were not selling out is so critical. So that's like a core future me value that must always be true. Us, me. us uh, p- punkers, there's a word we have that nobody else uses that was sort of the worst thing you could be called a poser. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. No posers. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> no posers. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then my, my now us values are about deep time, deep focus time with a small handful of friends. I realize why I'm bad at like texting, but great at a four hour dinner. Um, and then my future us values about a building a better matrix. So just like iterating where we are now to something better. So when I make choices now, I sort of isolate each of these voices and ask them to tell me what, whether what I'm proposing is in line with them or not. And I'm getting back like a simple yes or no answer. Um, the most, one of the most interesting examples was, um, you know, I get, I get invited to speak at companies and, um, <coughs> and sometimes it's for companies I don't like for, you know, advertising, financial services, things that are just not that the don't sell out part of me is like, whoa, what are, what are we doing here? And so I always say no to those things. I always say no, um, just feels wrong to me. And when I get asked by one of those places, I get like irrationally angry about it too. Um, and so I asked, I got asked by one of them not long after making the bento. So I thought I should ask my bento what it says. And so I asked my now me voice, which, said, which says that I am at my best when I show people the matrix. And so that voice said, yeah, you should do the talk. I asked my now us voice, which is about deep focus time. And they're like an hour and a half to share ideas with people. Like you should do the talk. My future us voice, which wants me to build a better matrix says, well, these are the people that are control the matrix. Like this is exactly who you need to talk to. Yes, you should do the talk. And then I got to my future me voice, which says, don't sell out. And it said, you're just doing this for the money. Like 
you should, you know, you're, you're creating a convenient excuse for yourself. Uh, and so I got to sort of isolate that voice. And, and I felt like in a way I got to really hear it out for the first time. And it occurred to me as I saw it in the context of the other things that were important to me, that that voice was more like a, it's more like a bouncer standing outside the door and it's trying to protect me. It knows what it's supposed to keep out, but that I also have the right to tap that bouncer on the shoulder and say, no, 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 it's cool. You can, you can let this one in. And in that way, I was able to find a choice that felt self-coherent in a way that I was like honoring the complicated feelings I had uh, and then was making a decision that like was honest about those things. And, um, and so that, that has really like been true of every choice I've made um, really ever since. And, and even how I design my energy and how my time now is trying to balance what, where am I in my best? What is it that, that is most important to me? And, and yeah, I mean, how, how do I orient my energy and my time and my life um, towards what I believe to be most true and most valuable? And it seems to me the, the bento lens, if I could call it that, um, probably tilts you more towards uh, the future me and the future us. Yes. Like, well, do I really well, need that piece of cake? I mean, yeah. the future me or the, 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 the now me is yelling pretty loud on that one. The future me is going, oh man, we're going to, you know, this thing's at least an hour and a half in the gym. <laughs> this is, or a lot of paddling out in the waves. <laughs> yeah, if you're totally. me. Well, I think it, diff- you know, what's the more I've gotten into it, the more I've realized there are some areas of my life where I will, I don't know, I'll shade more toward, like I, I have my weak spots. Um, but I had an interesting experience just the other day. I woke up on Sunday, you know, my book's like three weeks out. And so I'm just in the midst of like, just ego gazing constantly looking for internet signals that are positive, that are affirming, um, which is just, I I understand that (laughs) chasing shadows, chasing shadows of shadows of shadows, like (laughs) nothing even close to real. So I woke up with this anxious energy on a Sunday morning and I like, after making my kid breakfast, I immediately opened my computer to start working. And my wife was just like, really a computer on a Sunday morning? Like that's what you're doing right now. And <laughs> uh, I was like, okay, yeah, I hear you. So what I did, and I have, the, I have it open right now in front of me, but I took out my notebook and I just wrote at the top, what should I do with my energy this morning? And, and I drew a blank bento. And what's fascinating is in like my now me part of the bento, which just once the ego boosting, it was like promote. <laughs> Offer a sweepstakes, create new content. These are like my ideas. And then my future me, I'm just going to read what I wrote down, was learn more before writing more. <laughs> read these things, build connections with these people I've been introduced to. You know, my now us was like reminding me that I need to leave my head, that a conversation I'd had with a friend earlier that week had been my best moment the entire week. And I didn't even know it was going to be a work conversation. And then my future us told me, why are you caring about the book, like you're about bentoism and the idea of promoting this philosophy, like the book is a part of that, but that's not all of it. So why are you, why are you focused on this? And so I ended up having like this very different reflection of where my energy could go. And and then, and then I looked at this more and, and realized that in each one of these things I was writing, each one of these boxes, these are not only like positive things I could do, but also these are pitfalls of mine. Like the desire to self-promote, well, that leads me to be transactional to ask for things, to build bridges, you know, the desire to reach out to friends to feel better. Well, that's me using them as like an unpaid therapist. Um, you know, me working on the, isn't that, yeah, see, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but isn't that why we have friends so that, that we don't probably have to pay why we have friends. <laughs> but you know, do you ever have those conversations where you're like, Oh wait, it's been 50 minutes and I haven't asked you about you yet. You know, <laughs> sometimes you have those. Or the uh, other expression I love is um, enough about you back to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I ended up seeing, so I ended up seeing how like there was sort of a light and a dark side to all these things. In the end, I came up with my harmonious bento which was just like, yeah, write and promote the book, but do it thoughtfully. And I ended up saying, all right, pick two ways. I'm going to do that this week, you know, and just try to use it to try to balance, like, how do I check myself and how to remind myself of what's important? And after doing that, I made my to-do list for the week. Um, And so that whole process of drawing those three bentos, that was the time it took me to make oatmeal. So that's like eight minutes. um, And it gave you this this clarity, this this Zen-like Yancey clarity. (laughs) 
yeah, by the time I looked up, my my anxious ego energy was gone. I mean, I could yeah. see that for what it was, which was like a desire for attention that was unmet. And that, but that was like, I didn't deserve that attention anyway. Like what, where, where's that supposed to be coming from? You know, it's just, who gives a a shit about that much attention anyway. That's the other thing that's sort of happened in the world that we live in. Like, I I know you talk about and write a lot about how, you know, money is sort of the true North thing that we've anchored to, but uh, which I generally agree with, but now we're also anchoring to this other thing, which is like, I, I posted this photo of a flower on Instagram and how many people liked it, how quickly, right? It's this weird um, Pavlovian well, the, bullshit, social media bullshit, right? It shows us the power of quantification, you know? Um, just if it, I know Instagram's going to experiment with not showing likes, but like those, those, you know, in, in, in a world where we're all suffering from, various forms of self-doubt because we live in a hyper individualized world, you know, we're looking for anything solid and weirdly a like count is like as, as close as you can get. By the way, this is a side note, but it's an aha that I've had recently and I'm embarrassed that it took me this long to get there. I started as an author a little over three years ago and as a podcaster about two and a half years ago. And I recently had the following aha. And the aha goes like this. It's not about writing or podcasting. It's actually about learning things and sharing those learnings. Mm. And those are just vehicles. And, and actually, Bala from Salesforce helped me understand that. He's, in, his slight, in a different context, he said to me how what he's really gotten in the last few years is in the past, he would learn something and then that would be a thing that he knew. And now, whenever he learns something or discovers something of interesting interest, he shares it. And he has this whole concept of movement that the real power in knowledge is moving knowledge and sharing it so that when you learn something interesting, what there is to do to share, is share. And the guy tweets like a mofo. And, but but it, it's all interesting shit. He's got one of the best Twitters to, to follow. But that's the mindset. And it sort of helped me understand. It's like, yeah, it's, it's not about a podcast or a book or any of that stuff. It's actually about what Vala is talking about, the movement of ideas and sharing ideas and learning interesting things and sharing those things, at least for me. Yeah, uh, that, and so that I, is, I thought it was very clarifying. It's like, we're not, we're not marketing a fucking podcast or a book. That's actually, it comes in those forms, but that's not what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, <clears throat> you're talking about purpose, you know, that, that larger purpose and it's, it's easy. I mean, it's easy to lose that. It's it's so easy to lose that. I'm re- I'm reminded of um. I'm reminded of a theory of like that we are we're now in a. Uh, earlier, I said we're in a post-economic age, and I do think that's what is happening now. But that also we're in a period called metamodernism, metamodernism. So not postmodernism, but metamodernism. And the idea of metamodernism is that there's something useful in everything. And that like the new, the metamodern way to look at the world is to kind of look at it without judgment, but simply to ask what is, what is useful or what could be learned from that? You know, you, you, you know, you hate Amazon, but you always read the Jeff Bezos's shareholder letters because he has such smart things to say. And so what could be learned in that for your, you know, social activist group or something like that? Like that would be a meta-modern way to look at the world. Um, and I, I find that to be interesting. I mean, I think that's kind of how, what has colored so much of my career is just, um, just picking up things, just seeing things, finding signals in the noise and, and being able to find signals in unexpected places. Um, but I like that. I like that notion of just like, uh, just a positive utilitarianism as a way of going about life. And I'm very curious to kind of get into this notion of yours of generosity. What sort of, why is this so important to you? And, and particularly as a, you know, you started off in the venture capital world, sort of, um, creating this whole new paradigm, but you're, you're a CEO, you're an entrepreneur, and yet you have this whole, foundation in um, sort of a bigger raison d'etre, what historically some people call the double bottom line. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of seems to inform uh, a lot of your thinking. I'm trying to you know, synthesize some of the things that you write and say, but I'm very curious why you centered on this idea of generosity. 
Well, I mean, I think that there's a, so I, uh, you know, there's a Bible verse I think about, um, and I'm going to get the actual verse wrong. So I'm not going to try, but Ephesians, I, I, I don't remember that. I think it's 512, but, um, uh, but for our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and dark authorities of this world, something along those lines, but the battle is not against flesh and blood. It's these larger things. And so, you know, I think that, um, I think I probably learned this from my own just personal experience, but it's hard, like, we're not even very generous with ourselves. And, um, and, and the degree to which we see life as uh, kind of a brutal competition, which we, it's our choice whether or not it is that it's not naturally one way or the other. Um, and the degree to which we, yeah, I don't know. And I've experienced like feeling another person's gain as our loss and this sort of ungenerous ways we see the world that are all like fictions we tell ourselves um, that really have very little bearing in reality, but yet dictate so much of what we think is possible and also what we think is rational. I mean, the book I write about this idea of rationality, and I know that people don't behave universally in a rational way, but we all do our best. And, And so we just have we've adopted these mindsets of like very limited notions of how to consider what's rational, what's, what's a good decision, what's not a good decision. And the outcome of those things is just, is just a high degree of selfishness. And to me, the, the antidote to selfishness is an, as a note of generosity. Um, but I'm, you know, the, the, the path I imagine to a more generous world uh, is not one where everybody gets the same level of woke or we all adopt the same set of moral values. Like, I think that, I think that would be wrong. Like that's a, that's tyranny in another form. It's just in the form that might be more pleasing to me, but I can't justify that. Um, so I think the real, the real answer is how do we make, how do we demonstrate that more generous decisions are just better decisions? And you do that through proving things out over time. You do that through creating metrics or just like, uh, structured ways of doing things, um, you know, really doing a good job of making, say, social cohesiveness a, a, a core thing that we discuss and think about. Um, but to me, the long-term path is about, like Adele did, expanding the dashboard from just financial value to, in her case, loyalty. Um, but it's about expanding the dashboard from just ourselves to thinking about things beyond that. And to me, being generous is really just about thinking beyond you. And um, it's not a world where I imagine, you know, we're in caps, we're thinking about every human being in the planet with every choice we make, like the us, I imagine us thinking about the now us is much closer than that. I imagine that as being people that you care about, that you have emotional feelings for. But even if we all did a slightly better job of, of, you know, thinking about the people that are important to us, I think that could be a massive improvement in the world. Now, I couldn't agree with you more. I think, I think... It is a very interesting mindset. It's worthy of consideration for sure, and play I, more than consideration, kind of playing with. Um, and there's sort of two things. Um, one is, and these are not necessarily connected, but my brain works this way. On one hand, I'm very curious to get into into with you how you think this ties, or whether or not it touches to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And at the same time, the other thing going on in my head, and I don't know, again, I don't know why these are connected or if they are, is if I take a 30,000 step uh, foot back, I go, this sounds like um, rich people problems. Like, this is what rich people think of. Because like, hey, man, I'm having a hard time keep, keeping, as George Bush said, food on my family. And um, <laughs> this future me, future us bullshit, I'm worried about like the rent now us. <laughs> and so this sounds like a high class Thing to I think, think it's the, I actually think it's the reverse, actually. Um, I think it's that rich people have a harder time thinking of these other spaces than people with less money do. Okay, um, good. Now tell me about that. Well, because, I mean, if you look at like, so to me, the Bentoism argues for the rationality of religion um, and, and argues for religion as like a strong, a strong, a strong structure for removing focus on yourself. Um, and if you look at religious beliefs as they're correlated with income, I mean, generally the richer someone is, the less religious they are. And I think if you're someone who, um, is struggling with your now me, which 
you know, 43% of Americans can't afford their bills every month. Um, if you're struggling with your now me, well, then I think you do think about the future. You think about the afterlife. You think about the, 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 the ultimate ending you're trying to earn for yourself. You, you also are, I think, have a higher ties to your family and to your community, to your congregation. I think that those things become incredibly important. And like your us and your future are important in a way because your now me is so difficult. And so those places are escape. They're, they're ways of balancing that part of your life, like the most challenging part of your life where you lean on others, you lean on the idea that there will be salvation in the end. Um, and this is what helps give your life meaning. Um, for a wealthy person, their now me is probably pretty awesome. I mean, there's, there's plenty of psychic struggles, but there isn't a real challenge there. And it's possible to just indulge with shopping sprees all day and not really thinking about consequences. Because yeah, sure, you have your 401k anyway, and you own your house. So there is some sort of like financial foundation there. But I don't think that it actually leads to a richer life truly in those other spaces. I think it actually mm. hurts them. Um, and I think if we're thinking about whose behavior needs to change in society. I, I don't think it's the families that are struggling. I think it's the families that are, that are abundant, that are the ones that really need to change their behavior. So uh, this, this, just me, this just might be how naive I am. I, I assumed, Yancey, particularly for people who are, the term that gets used, although I don't like it, is self-made. That is to mm. say, not born with money. I'm yeah. not self-made, and I don't know anybody who's successful who would call themselves self-made because I think it's not, just not true, <laughs> at least for those of us who had lots of help. <laughs> yep. uh, anyway, that if you go through sort of um, you know being fairly low on the socioeconomic totem pole and you find a way to... Um, you know, for me, entrepreneurship wasn't a way up. It was a way out. Mm -hmm. And so my naive assumption was if you get to a place in life where you answer the question, am I going to make it? Am I going to be okay? Mm -hmm. you know, can I achieve some level of financial security for myself and my family that I'm not sweating the rent anymore and the fucking car doesn't break down every three days and the bill collector and, and, and. Like if you can break out of that life and get to a place where you have a relative amount of economic security, you, you've answered the question, am I going to be okay? And once you've answered that question, I thought naturally you turn out to the now us and the future us and you say, okay, well, what about my community? And what about my town and neighborhood? And what about my state and country? And hey, man, uh, there's a lot of other places in the world that suck. Uh, maybe I should be doing something to try to ease some of the suffering on the planet some way, somehow. And because I've, I've dealt with myself, right. don't, I, don't I open and, and look out? But you're saying that's not what happens. Yeah, I mean, this is, I, I, I had also shared that assumption. Um, and I'm still like, you know, I've, I've given workshops of Bentoism to, you know, 100, 100, 150 people right now. So like I, there are, you know, it's a fraction of the population I've shared this with. But um, my belief is that if, if the drive, if you come from a low socioeconomic status, and let's say you reach the the Kahneman threshold of $75,000 a year, at which point you sort of reach some kind of happiness maximum or satisfaction maximum. Um, if, you, if you reach that $75,000 goal by like being someone who's money driven, so you went to college and you're trying to get, I'm just trying to, I want to make six figures. Once I make six figures, I'll be cool. Um, for that person, when they make six figures, it's not enough. Six figures becomes well, but it's less than what Jim got, you know. And and even if that is far beyond what you ever imagined, the 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 sands shift. Now, if you got your seventy five thousand dollars a year by solving some sort of collective problem, like you're doing it in a more selfless way, like you are pursuing knowledge and you happen to write something that does well and you're a voice that gets listened to, then I think that person probably it does lead to a flourishing in those other spaces for them. Probably having more now me security lets them do that more. 
But we've been operating on this assumption that if we can just get paid enough, then we could become virtuous. And I think the reality is, is just that's not true. And, and that happens for some people, but that is not, that is not really the, the process. I think, I think the reality is we all have varying levels of virtuousness that we are capable or more or less capable of speaking to in our better or worse moments. Um, and I think we all have the capacity to increase what we can do. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't think it's that. I think the, the model that we have now where everyone's looking up to the rich to see what we're supposed to do, I think it has it exactly backwards. Like I think, I think a society modeled on how does the person making $45,000 a year live? I think that would probably produce a, 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 a true society of something closer to like wealth, you know, just a different way of wealth than we think about it right now. Yes, and you, you have this argument for uh, measuring other things than economic wealth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if I, I talk about like one, one of the emphases for writing the book was uh, I was living in New York City in the Lower East Side and gentrification taking over. And there was a moment where um, uh, an old punk dive bar called Mars Bar got torn down and replaced by a TD bank. And um, it, what was wild is that it was the fourth TD bank within a 15-minute walk of that same corner at the time. And as someone who lived in the neighborhood, I'm like, I get that this probably makes everyone's property values go up, right? Like there's this, there's this financial case where it's like, it, it was a bar, now it's a bank. Like, let's just imagine the, the secondary implications of that on the neighborhood. But on the other hand, I'm like, this is destroying neighborhood value. Like, we don't need another bank. You know, uh, do we need a punk dive bar from the 1980s? I don't know. But like, we need places for people to get together, you know? And so it's like becoming wealthy in one value set and becoming poor in another value set. And, but what was clear to me as someone who lived around the corner from there was that only one of those values actually mattered to anyone that had any say. And, uh, and that just seems crazy to me. It's interesting. You're reminding me of, uh, uh, story from my life, and I, I, I shouldn't say who or where because it's not appropriate, but a buddy of mine who's an extremely successful venture capitalist in his town, um, the uh, theater was going bankrupt and it was going to get sold and turned into a restoration hardware, a Starbucks or fuck knows what, right? So something like that. Yeah. And, uh, and he said, hey, man, you know, th this is not cool. This is a great old theater, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he and a couple of buddies bought it and refurbished it. And, you know, because they wanted it to be a centering, continue to be a centering part of the community. Um, and, and so with your bento box, uh, lens, I you know, I would imagine that's a that's a future us um, decision. Yeah, I mean, it's future us profitable. Um, like to me, the we're we're in a moment now where the idea of investing financial value in the creation of non financial outcomes seems crazy, right? Invest money now. Yes, say that again, please. Using financial value to invest in non-financial values seems crazy. Yes. Yeah. And whenever I do it, people say to me, you what? Yeah. What are you, nuts? We classify that as spending or as charity. And, that, and the only reason why we call it spending or charity rather than investment is because the return is a non-financial value versus a financial value. But like this is... This is how we have come to misread the actions of our own government over the past 40, 50 years, where we talk about wasteful government spending. No, really, we're talking about wide-ranging government investments in our future societies, and that will produce... This is where you go socialist on me, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I don't even, I don't even, I mean, I don't know any, I really know so little about policy. I can't really say much in terms of like the practicalities of what should happen. But there's, there's these amazing books by this economist named Mariana Matsukato. And she just shows how like, we think of government spending as spending because we fail to acknowledge what the true spectrum of value is. We think of it as spending because it's not producing a financial outcome. It's like, Amtrak right now is being celebrated for being profitable this year, but 
you know, why why have we had this assumption that the goal of Amtrak should be to be profitable, or, or instead the goal of Amtrak is to provide a strong transportation network that produces all these other benefits that we, you know, that are, are flourishing in so many different ways. Well, it's, it's like one directly. of our most popular episodes of all time is with a guy named TJ Welsh, and he's a retired uh, fire chief and was on the team that put helped implement the standards around California for uh, fighting these wildfires. And he sort mm-hmm. of takes you inside a wildfire and how it's possible that in eight hours they can put up a functioning city for 10,000 firefighters and be feeding them steaks, you know, never mind getting their supply lines. And like, it's just what, and all the different agencies and how they come together and the technology and so forth and so on. And, and so you sit there and you listen to this and I sit there and I go, uh, and I, I'm no socialist, but I sit there and listen to this and go, you know, all you idiots who say, hey, the government's a m- bunch of morons, are, can't get anything done, the government sucks, the government this, the government. I'm like, really? Um, listen to TJ tell you about how we fight fires. Or yeah. even more simply, how'd you like the road you drove on today, asshole? <laughs> <laughs> someone like, who lives- the government gets some shit right. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, it's to quote Mitt Romney, the government is people, my friends. Um, uh, <laughs> but, you know, living here in California, like, yeah, the firefighters are amazing, are amazing. I mean, I, I, I experienced this. There was a brush fire in the park. I walk in every day and me and another guy walking the dog saw it. He called, he called the LAFD. And within 10 minutes, within 10 minutes, there's a helicopter flying over, dumping chemicals and water over this fire and like nailing it, putting it out. And it was like unbelievable, unbelievable, like response, precision, everything. I, I was just like, this, these are extraordinary like, human beings. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, a- absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. Well, it's like these people who shit on the cops and I'm not suggesting there haven't been problems with the cops and that there won't be problems with the cops going forward. N- nobody's perfect, but um, Hey, what do you want to have happen when we dial nine one one? I know yeah. what I want to have happen. And so, you know, what are you guys talking about here? <laughs> the government's useless. So, but to me, this, this, um, yeah, this like, just this sort of philosophical question of, can we invest financial value into non-financial value and treat it as an investment? And, and what, what does it mean to treat something as an investment? It means being patient for returns it means tolerating risk and tolerating failure. And it means placing a variety of bets. And like, that's, I don't know, that's, the, that's a great model. That's a great model. Um, it's what's driven our economic expansion. And so why can't that same model be used to drive different forms of values? And so I think it does. I mean, I think in some nonprofits, that's what's happening. I think that's what some government programs have done. Um, If you want to go to the socialist route and say, you know, that's some of like how Scandinavian countries seem to think about things or even how China thinks about things with their investments in R&D, like, sure. Um, One of the uh, ideas I wanted to kick around a little with you, uh, we had both... uh, four-star general McChrystal, Stanley McChrystal on, and Sebastian Younger on. Yep. And both of them have very similar ideas for uh, creating a renewed sense of uh, connection. And, and these are my words, not necessarily their words, but social fabric. Mm-hmm. And both of them in one way or another said, America is the only country that gives its people so much and literally asks nothing in return. Yeah. <laughs> Like you can even not pay yeah. your taxes and go to jail and the country will take care of you. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so both of them, their suggested antidote to this would be to have a minimum of a year of service at 18 to the country could be yeah. military, but it could be, you know, swinging a hammer for habitat for humanity or pick whatever sort of social initiative that we as a country deem is important. But, but this idea that at the age of 18, you would essentially donate a year of your life. These are my words, not theirs. You're a useless idiot. You don't know your ass from your elbow anyway. You don't know what you're doing in school. So why not learn a skill and make a contribution? It's sort of the general idea as a way to begin to create a sense of patriotism and contribution and service to one's community and country. But I'm curious to get your thoughts to, to things like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I applaud all those kinds of devices. I mean, I think, I think 
traditions and shared experiences are things we really underrate. Um, and so I think, yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, I, I think those sorts of compulsory actions, even though I'm probably one who would complain about it, <laughs> you know, like it doesn't, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not the most, I, I'm, I'm as, I'm as complaining as anybody, but, um, but yeah, I think that those things are, are what's needed. I mean, in the book, I celebrate the fact that Chick-fil-A is closed on Sundays as a form of like, a form of rest, right? And that maybe has a religious origin with Chick-fil-A, but is ultimately about creating space for other kinds of values to exist. So, you know, someone someone could, hey, like make, say that if you do your year of service, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll get 80% off your student loans or something like that, you know, whatever. But it's, it's something that should happen. I mean, I, I agree with that. It's a fascinating idea. And, uh, you know, we're in a political season in our country and it's just another one of important things. I think nobody's fucking talking about on either side. I'm not a big fan of either side right now. Um, but anyway, well, I think that, you know, like, like any, like any organization, you know, if it goes on long enough, the, that initial burst of energy that comes with its founding, like starts to dissipate. It be, turns into what about me for a while. And, these things devolve and, and, and it's hard, it, it, whether it's a company, an institution of any kind, it's, it's hard to keep that energy going for a long time. And you ultimately need, like, it's a, it's a relay of just like different people coming in with the right energy and caring about the right things that, you know, our institutions rely on that. They need that or else they will crumble. Yeah. And so, you know, if you were to describe probably what half of government agencies do and just present it as like, this is a new Y Combinator startup instead of government agency, they'd probably have, you know, 30,000 job applicants tomorrow. <laughs> See, it's because, all about category design and positioning, Yancy. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. Uh, and so, but instead it's like, yeah, just, just people really don't look at it, look at these things with much respect. I mean, it, I'm, I'm 41. And if I think about my, you know, the Gen X generation, which I would be at the tail end of, um, you know, we thought we could just audition for like the real world and road rules and the world would just keep <laughs> running itself. And it's not true. Somebody's like, got to run the world, Yancey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, someone's got to win this next challenge. What are you talking about? <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah, think about what's important. But we, yeah, so I don't know. I, I'm a believer. I'm a believer in institutions. I'm a believer in shared, you know, uh, shared obligations. Um, and, and, you know, these are things that some people naturally have those inclinations and like, and, you know, I, I, I almost tear up thinking about like what kind of spirit that is. And I have, I have some of that spirit in me. I also have a selfish, you know, only child spirit in me too, to balance in that. So like, I need to be dragged out of that, right? I need, I need to be dragged out of the house and do those things. And, and they will absolutely be to my benefit and to the benefit of others. Um, but we live in a country where it's, it's always easier to not do something than it is to do something. And it's always easier to look on your phone than anything than anything else. Yeah, right. It might be something important happening on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can we take a phone break for the next exactly. 30 Let's have seconds a meeting and we're going to have 25 people together in a meeting and we're all going to sit there and look at our fucking phones. <laughs> it happens all the time. <laughs> you know, occasionally I'll speak at a conference. I know you do some speaking as well, right? And you look around, everybody's on their fucking phone. Like, why are we here in person? We flew here for fuck's sake. I just, I just assume they're writing, they're working on the perfect tweet about how genius I am to send yeah. out to their millions of followers. That's, that must that's be what it. I tell myself. Buy Yancey's yeah. new book, tweet, tweet, yeah. tweet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right, Yancey, anything else you want to touch on before we wrap? No, I just, you know, um, yeah, I, I just, I appreciate the conversation and, you know, and I, I approach this book as like a, a, a humble person who has a lot of questions and has some interesting answers, but isn't trying to, you know, isn't trying to impose any kind of beliefs or value systems on anybody else. But I, I think this notion of expanding how we see value in a world where we, we see how important it is to invest financial value into creating non-financial value to me, that just makes so much sense as just sort of like the next step, our next step, and that and that we really might be ready for. Um, and so that's I'm going to keep working on that question and problem. And if people are interested, come find me. And I'm whystrickler.com on on the internet. But like, I'm just looking for other people to raise their hands, and and those are people that can be a part of this. 
and and I'm so glad you're raising it because you know when I started to consume your stuff, I was like, at first I I felt like oh this is feeling a little Berkeley West Coasty, right? Yeah. And then, but I always love you know my brain because when I have a I wouldn't call it negative in this regard, but certainly a huh kind of a reaction. Mm. And I'm like, all right, keep engaging in this idea, Lockhead, because the fact that it's got you mm. means there's something there, right? So let's yeah. let's just engage in it with a white belt's mind kind of a thing. Yeah, totally. And, and what I got was the now me financial lens is so um it's it's water and we're fish. Yeah. That was point A and point B. I, I, I started to look at, okay, so when do we not use that? What happens? And, you know, you talk about New York. And of course, one of the things that we all love in New York is Central Park. Mm. And the existence of Central Park from a financial perspective. Right. It's like an anti-space or something. Yeah. Well, it might be from a pure economic perspective, the dumbest real estate move in, in, in the world, right? Mm-hmm. But of course, take take Central Park out and put a bunch more fucking buildings there and something magic goes away, right? That's great. Yeah, totally. 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 And, and we so all have, I love like, you inviting us to explore multiple ways of looking at quote unquote value. Yeah. And I think, I think this is something we know how to do on a personal level. Like I think we, you know, it's not easy to make values driven personal choices, but I think we all have a fairly good handle on what that is. It's doing that collectively that we have, sort of written off as being impossible somehow. And it's not easy, but if we know that non-financial values are important, then I feel like the responsibility should be, how do we make it less difficult to make choices in support of that? We can't promise easy, but can we make it less difficult uh, to make more value creating decisions? And that's, that's ultimately the path I'm on. And I just think, yeah, of course we can. Of course we can. You know, it's a matter of degree, but I, I will always bet on on humans um, to figure it out. Like I, 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 I'm an optimist about us. And the book is optimistic, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Yancy, you're a legend. Thank you so much for your time. It's been fantastic. Yeah, it's lovely. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Well, there he is. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Yancy as much as I did. Um, if you want to send us email, you can always do that. Send it to blackhole, all one word, at lockhead.com. We're kind of swamped uh, these days, but we're doing our best to get back to everybody. Uh, you can check out what my nephew calls my weak social media game. I'm on LinkedIn, uh, at Lockhead on Twitter, and at Lockhead on Instagram. All right. We would like to thank our guest today, Yancey Strickler. Check out his fantastic new book, this could be our future, a manifesto for a more generous world anywhere you get legendary books. Socrates.ai, the leading digital conversation hub. They want to help you make your company employee awesome. And what that means is imagine being able to talk or text any HR-related question and getting back an immediate answer. That's Socrates and that's employee awesome. Check out S-O-C-R-A-T-E-S.ai today. And is it time to scale you? If so, why not check out my friends at Bottleneck Virtual Assistants and leverage the power of a virtual assistant at bottleneck.online. And if you're in Silicon Valley and you're in the B2B space, uh, my friends at Otranet have been building legendary uh, B2B enterprise websites for over 20 years. Check out atre.net. And a nonprofit that I absolutely adore, I'm, I'm proud to uh, a sponsor some activity with, is called Donors Choose. And Donors Choose, they've been guests, um, we've had them on this podcast. They allow you to fund special projects for teachers and students all around the country who need our help. Check out donorschoose.org. All right, I need to remind you that this podcast is a whole, is a whole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and we'd love it if you shared the shit out of it. Make no mistake, your shares mean the world to us. All rights do remain perturbed. Remember, if you're in marketing, check out my new marketing podcast, Lockhead on Marketing. We must warn you that this Oddcast and the other one is clearly created in a studio that does contain nuts. We're produced by the legendary Jamie J and Sarah Knox, edited by Mike D, and show notes by Diane Gervasio. Remember to teach peace, be nice to your father, Uh, the sage words of David Lee Roth, who said, hey man, that suit is you. Listen to Leonard Cohen 
Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Elizabeth Holmes of Theranos. Sorry, Lizzie, we just ran out of time for you. That's it. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with me. Uh, Stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your difference.